Welcome back to the Mole Pigs podcast. Today, our guest is Namita Saraf. Also with me today are Boya. Hi. Georgios. Hey. And I'm Will. Namita is a graduate student in Lulu Chien's lab at Caltech. She works on using simple algorithms to implement complex functionality in DNA robots. She earned her BS in biomedical engineering at the University of Rochester, where she did research in tissue engineering before learning about molecular programming and falling in love with it. Namita, hi. Hi, Will, and Georges and Boya. Uh, so what exactly is a DNA robot? So a DNA robot is a way to describe sort of a DNA system that operates on a surface and implements some specific physical um, task. So we have seen, for example, out of our lab, a cargo sorting robot where this DNA system moves around on a surface and picks up cargo and places it in specific bins. Um, but it's sort of a term to describe surface reactions that are autonomously doing some task. What, what other DNA robots um, are, you, are you doing there? Um, have you got some other ones other than cargo sorting? Yeah, so the way we think about developing DNA robots is that we want to develop a bunch of simple skills that we can use to sort of put these like building blocks together and then eventually create like more complex robots. So cargo sorting is one simple skill. So I'm working on another simple skill that is maze solving. So essentially implementing a simple algorithm to try to solve a maze on a surface. Um, and then another thing that I've been thinking about is something we term mound building, which is like, how do you gather a bunch of, um, for example, pieces of dirt, like if you were an ant trying to build a anthill and then collect them in one place. Um, so these are all simple tasks on their own, but then the idea is eventually we could put them together to create robots that can do something more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, that's really cool. So that's kind of like emergent properties, right? Um... Yeah. So the way I think about it is sort of one example in the type of robots that we think about, like that are life-size or electronic, um, is like a, a safety response or a hazard response robot. So you have this robot that learns how to like pick up debris or like turn a wheel to open a water hose or something. So these are all simple tasks on their own. But then once you put them all together in a single robot, that becomes like an emergency response robot. So similarly, we want to do something like that with DNA robots. So um, you mentioned ants. Um, do you, because ants are kind of known for their simple beings relatively, and then together they can do complicated tasks like um, kind of building mounds and bridges to, to navigate obstacles and stuff. Do you mainly exploit ant behavior and ant um, kind of algorithms, or do you also have some novel algorithms that aren't seen in nature? Yeah, so I think it's more like we take inspiration from the way that ants behave and sort of collective behavior, um, but it's pretty difficult to mimic the algorithms themselves that ants use. For example, ants use... Um, they also do sort of like maze solving in a sense, but they use pheromones to leave like a trail to food that they found so that other ants can then follow that trail. So we take inspiration by saying like, okay, we want to find a path through a maze. 
and then potentially allow future robots to be able to follow that same path to get to the same goal. But obviously, we can't use pheromones to make our robots um, do that task. So yeah, it's more like we take inspiration from the behavior we see in nature, but we have to come up with our own algorithms that work for the system that we're using. So are there any analogs of pheromones that you could use? Like, can you tag um, the kind of notches or whatever along the maze with some molecule as your walker goes past? Um, or do you do something else? Yeah, exactly. So that's that's more or less the idea is that we mark the path. Um, and then the extension of that is that we mark it in such a way that a future robot um, preferentially travels along that path as opposed to another one. That's really cool. Um, what sort of mazes have you been, like what level of complexity have you been able to solve? So, so far we are not at a super complex stage, but as far as the mazes go, but um, we build all of our mazes on top of origami. So we have one constraint, which is that we have the origami um, like the grid on top of the origami to work with. But the advantage of using origami is that eventually we can put multiple origami together and create larger mazes that are unbounded if we wanted to. Um, so I think we haven't quite reached that point yet, but there's potential for us to create as complex of mazes as we want to really. So how does the, like, when you implement these maze solving algorithms, are they similar to the ones that you'd see on a computer? Like, can the DNA robot remember where it's already been um, when it's testing new paths? Or how does it, like, or is it more like the slime molds, which kind of are trying mo loads of different things at once? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we are not able to, or it would be very complex to try and implement a system where the robot itself has memory of where it's been. So the way that we approach it is more how does the robot respond to environmental cues and what how do the environmental cues change based on where the robot has been or where it needs to go um, so yeah that's one sort of limitation that makes it necessary to come up with other ways to determine these things because it would be very very complicated to try to build a sort of smart robot I think it's possible and in the future Hopefully that will be explored, but where we have the technology right now, I think we are not at a point where we can really have intelligent robots, so to speak. Um, yeah. So I know that um, there's an algorithm for solving maze. Um, I'm not sure if I remember it correctly, is that you walk along the wall um, of the path of the maze and eventually you'll find the exit. Is that something that you're doing similarly or you're using a different approach to solve the maze? So yeah, that's a, um, a really fun one to think about. Like it's, I think it's called the right hand um, rule or something. Like if you put your right hand on the wall and just never lift it, you will eventually reach the exit of the maze. Um, so that one is also one that it's not that practical to implement it with a robot because the the way that the robot interacts with the maze is slightly different than the way a person like walking through a maze would interact with it um like the the idea of like a wall or something is like a little bit different um so yeah we can't really use 
the traditional maze solving techniques that people use, even in like computer science, like the toy problems that people use or play with. Um, instead, we have to come up with an algorithm that sort of takes into account the physical um, characteristics of the system. So uh, yeah, so our algorithms look slightly different than what you would traditionally think of as a maze solving algorithm. And I think that's where the fun of the project really is, is in how how can you come up with a simple way to implement this behavior in this specific system that doesn't reflect the types of mazes that we have traditionally thought about? So when you mention the physics, I know um, some early DNA walkers, um, I, I assume these are kind of like walkers on, on the track, um, would consume the track as they go. But I assume if you want a walker or a robot um, to, to follow, then are your tracks reusable? And does that mean that your robots are kind of random walkers that can move backwards as well as forwards? And if so, how do you make them preferentially go towards the end? Yeah, so we do, so the robots can move backwards and forwards. So the tra track is sort of reusable in that sense. Um, and it actually is quite a challenge to make sure that it, well, okay, so this is one interesting thing about preferential walking is like, if you're exploring a maze, your first thought might be, I want the robot to move forward preferentially, right? Because you don't want to be spending time backtracking. But the problem is that if you do that, then when you reach a dead end, you're going to spend a lot more time at the dead end, right? Rather than like backing up and trying another route. So actually we prefer to balance the rates of like, we, we want it to be a random walk because we want it to be just as easy to explore, but also just as easy to backtrack when you hit a dead end. Um, so that is, yeah. So that's how we, we um, have implemented our system as like a random walk. Does that mean that it's, um, Kind of quadratic time complexity for for it to like as the mazes get bigger and bigger um is it that standard random walk statistics yeah exactly yeah so ideally if there was a way to you know preferentially move forward when you're on the right path and preferentially move backward when you're on the wrong path that would be the ideal way to go but that requires some hard coding of or like sort of like this intelligent robot idea that i was talking about um and I think that would be great if that was achievable. Um, but I think right now we're sort of at a simpler step in the development of these technologies. Yeah. So, so when you're actually, uh, so like when you um, place a uh, DNA walker or, or a robot on the maze and uh, study its movement, I, pre I presume you're doing imaging with like electron microscopy. So does the, like, Putting a sample onto the electron microscope destroys the sample eventually, right? So can you actually, so do you just get loads of random samples or do you, can you actually visualize a single DNA walker moving in time under the microscope? So we actually have not yet explored um, any kind of microscopy beyond um, atomic force microscopy. And we use like fluorescent readout mostly, like bulk fluorescence to tell what's happening. It would, I'm interested in using some super resolution techniques to try and visualize like a single molecule um, or single robot moving along, along the path. And I think that we might actually start to explore that very soon. Um, 
but so far our like gold standard techniques are AFM um, and and then to tell like the the dynamics of the system um, just bulk fluorescence. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess for dynamics, single molecule fluorescence microscopy sounds like the best, actually. Yeah, so I would love to do, like, paint or something um, to try and visualize, like, what's happening with a single walker. What's hard, though, about that, too, is there's some time constraints, and the robots are not super fast. So um, there are some, some technical challenges with, like, trying to do those kinds of microscopy techniques um, because you have some, like, you're basically time limited in how long you can observe the sample and it may not be long enough to like really see what's happening. Um, so yeah, we're working on that. I think that there might be soon forthcoming some um, single molecule imaging, but so far none. Is it, uh, forgive me if this isn't, if this is like, a, like if this is naive, but I presume like you're, you're time limited in that if you tag your walker with a fluorescent probe, it'll eventually bleach um, from repeated imaging. Is it, a, is it an idea to actually just tag the walker with a quencher and then tag the entire array with fluorescence and just track the dark spot rather than the bright spot on the maze? Oh, that's interesting. So isn't that going to be very expensive? Yeah, maybe, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, you would need a lot of fluorophores to do that. Um, but it is an interesting idea. I think in my understanding of like paint, which is the one that I've sort of like thought about um, the most, um, I think that you need in your medium, you need like some helper molecules that uh, eventually like burn out. Um, which I don't think are the fluorophores themselves. There's like some other helper molecules in the medium. I don't know if any of you guys are more familiar with paint and have like the specifics about this. Um, I don't quite remember because I looked into it a long time ago, but um, I think the medium itself you has like some time limit on how, how long it's viable. Um, yeah, so, but... Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, like we, we, I don't think we need single molecule techniques to be able to um, establish that our system is working or not. I think it's like an extra cool thing that we could do if we wanted to, but we haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it because with the tools we have, it's possible to still determine whether the system is working or not. Um, okay. So I guess how big are the mazes then? Like, are they, yeah, what size? Uh, scale yeah so we build them on tiles that are around like 80 nanometers um squares um so right now we we're using like single tiles but as i had mentioned earlier like the idea is that eventually we could build out to um onto multiple tiles that then like you know fit together and create larger mazes um but as of right now we are working on single tiles so are you able to combine some of the different sorts of DNA robot problems that, that you're doing? Like, can you combine cargo sorting with maze solving so that after it solves a maze, it can bring back some food or prize or, or whatever in analogy to those intelligence experiments and then take it somewhere else? Yeah, that's the idea. Right. So this kind of like goes back to this idea of modularity. So the idea is that we're building all these like building blocks 
sort of separately so that we can fully develop um, this particular aspect. But then we will eventually put them together to create, yeah, like you said, a robot that can go somewhere, retrieve something and like bring it back or like so on and so forth. So yeah, the idea is that eventually like we, we build these things in a way that they're composable and then we can compose them together to build like a super robot that does something cool. How easy is it for, for them to compose? Or is that still a hard problem that, that you're working on? It kind of depends. So because I'm still in the process of developing the maze-solving robot, it's hard to answer that question fully because it depends on like what you know the final design is. Yeah, I, I think it's hard to say, but we build them with the same paradigm, I'll say. Um, so I think that it should be straightforward, hopefully, to compose them together. But yeah, hard to say yet. So, so far, what is the challenging um, you, have you have been facing for um, the maze solving part? So I think the biggest challenge is that surface reactions are hard, like much harder than, in my experience, than um, reactions in solution. Um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot we understand about them, but there's also a lot we don't understand about how, you know, DNA extensions interact with the surface of the origami and how different types of origami um, have different properties. Um, so, yeah, I think the hardest part has been trying to figure out what we don't know about surface reactions and um, in a way that's very different from how we understand solution reactions um yeah and i think also there's less there's just less research in general on surface reactions like it's still a, a place that needs more work both on the theory side and on the experimental side so yeah how much time do you spend on on the theory versus experiment is it a lot of figuring things out or is it mostly kind of getting the experiments to run so I don't really do theory. I would say I do simulations. Um, I don't know, maybe like 40, 60, like 40% simulation, 60% experiments. Um, but there's actually a very nice theory paper that Lulu and Eric and Sam um, just published, Sam Clemens, on theory of surface reactions. Um, that has been really nice for me um, because I'm not really doing the theory part, but that's been like a nice um, sort of basis for me to work off of. So, yeah. And um, which do you prefer of the simulations and experiment? I like both. I like having both because when I'm stuck on one side, I can work on the other. Um, and it's fun to be able, I think like the really, it's sort of like a feedback system, right? It's like you get data or either you start with a simulation or you start with data, whatever, and you iterate um, and like the simulations help you run better experiments and the experiments help you understand or like build better simulations. So it's like, I like the feedback between the two. Um, I don't know which I like better. I think I, I like the fact that I can do both and sort of see both sides of it. Um, do you have any stories of things going really wrong or really right? Um, wow, that's a, <laughs> I mean, yes, <laughs> I have lots of stories <laughs> of things going really wrong and <laughs> fewer stories of things going really right. <laughs> um, but I'm trying to think about one that would be interesting to share um, without getting into too much detail. Um, I guess like I spent a year 
and a half, well, maybe a year working on a design um, that I was really excited about, thought was going to work, like felt like, you know, it made sense to me. And then it just didn't work. Like after a year, Lulu and I met one day and we were just like, let's not do this anymore. Let's scrap it and start over, which I think is like an extremely difficult moment because it's hard to say like, I'm just going to take this whole year of data, which is not useless. Like we learned something, we learned many things from that data, but to just say like, okay, we're just going to start from square one again. Um, I feel like that was a moment that I felt like things had just gone terribly wrong. Um, but I think that that's just a part of research, you know, like sometimes you just have to cut your losses and move on. Um, so it was a good lesson too. I guess looking back, I'm, it's not all bad, but at the moment I was like, really? <laughs> so. Yeah. I think we all have experiences of, of, um, things going going wrong after a lot of time put in do you wish that it was easier in science to kind of publish that because as you said that data is not useless but it's probably pretty difficult to to get it published even though it might help someone else avoid making going down the same road do you wish it was easier to do that yeah so I feel like this is something I've I've thought about a little bit and part of me is like yeah, that could be its own paper, maybe, if we were in the practice of publishing, like, negative data. But part of me is also, like, maybe that's where the supplemental is useful, is, like, you publish a figure in the supplemental saying, like, I tried this thing, it didn't really work. So then, hopefully, someone who's looking into, or who's super interested in your paper, would then, like, hopefully read the supplemental and find that relevant information. But I, I do think it should be out there. I think it's just a question of like how you present it. What's your vision for DNA robots? Where would you like to see them in like 20 years? Yeah, so I think, I hope that we are at a point where we've developed a large enough toolbox of like simple skills that we can we can build robots that can actually accomplish bigger tasks. Like, I don't know, like, just to use like a general buzzword, like drug delivery, like, let's say, like, can we build a robot that can do drug delivery? Like, what does that mean? It breaks down into like five or six different subtasks that the robot has to be able to do. Um, but yeah, so I guess I kind of hope that we're at a point where we've laid the groundwork, which is what we're doing right now. And then we can achieve that second or third level of complexity. Um, to be able to actually like do something useful because like it's not useful like in of itself like cargo sorting or maze solving is not like useful like what do you you know but can we build a useful robot that takes advantage of all this like basic technology that would be great do you think um any of of your hopes are informed by the tissue engineering background you came from do you think it could be helpful in that regime yeah absolutely i think that um there is a lot of, like, I guess sort of like along the lines of this drug delivery idea, there's a, in tissue engineering, there's a lot of small molecules that are really important, like sensing molecules, um, like factor, growth factors and whatnot that are super important in tissue development. Um, and I think that if we could actively 
position molecules and actively um, rearrange structures. Like if we could do that kind of stuff in tissue as it's maturing, that would, I think, change the way we think about tissue development. It's not like you just put stuff in a test tube and you wait for stuff to happen. It's like you're actively placing things. So like one of the ways I think about DNA robots is as like little builders, like what can these little robots build or how can they interact with their environment and change it in like nan- like nano ways or micro ways that we can't like go in with tweezers and change it, right? So I think that it could be really useful to to do something like that. Um like with tissue engineering, but also with many other, many other um, sort of things that happen at the the nanoscale. Yeah, I think that's uh, the hope of a lot of us. So you were mentioning that um, when you were uh, trying to build a robot that can soft maze, um, the problem is that um, there is not so much known about surface directions. So when you are doing the experiment, do you also spend some time to understand the reactions on the surface or you um, try multiple things instead of uh, spending too much time to understand how things works? How do you balance that? I think it's a little bit of both. So I think it's where our data gives us enough direction that we can come up with hypotheses about what's happening or whether there's some like additional influences on the reactions because of the surface um, we we come up with those hypotheses and where the data is too confusing and we can't really come up with a good hypothesis then we're like okay let's just try something else and see if this helps us better understand what's happening so I think the goal eventually I mean the ultimate goal is to um, understand what's happening and, and gain a deeper understanding of design principles on a surface, right? Like how do we design good reactions on a, on a surface? Um, but it's not always straightforward to be able to do that. So I think it's kind of balancing building the technology with understanding what's happening. And hopefully we make progress with both simultaneously. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think it's both. How did you... Um get from tissue engineering to molecular programming? What was the story behind that? Yeah, good question. So I basically had never heard of molecular programming before. Um, And I came to Caltech wanting to work on something specific with someone specific. Um, And then just kind of, I guess it was sort of like, I was not like, I just kind of felt like, the project I was doing, I wasn't as excited about it anymore as I had been. Um, and I also was taking Lulu's class at the time. And I was working a little bit with Paul when I was working on my previous projects, my previous. So I, I actually switched labs like in my, at the end of my second year. So I was working with Paul Rodemond um, on a project. Uh, so we talked, we had been talking a lot and he like provided some really great mentorship at that time because I was like, I don't know what I, if this is really what I love doing anymore. Like, I don't know what I want to do. Um, and I was taking Lulu's class at the time. And so Paul had actually suggested to me to take Lulu's class. And then I took it and I just like absolutely loved it. Like I had so much fun. I loved like Lulu's enthusiasm. I loved the subject material um, I loved her way of thinking and 
So at the end of taking her class, I asked the person who was my advisor at the time if I could rotate with her for like a term. And she was really cool with it. She was very supportive, um, my previous advisor. And then at the end of that rotation term, I joined Lula's lab. So it was sort of like I was losing a little bit of interest in like the project I had been working on. And then I also became like super inspired by Lulu's um, class and then joined her lab. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you, you mentioned kind of you'd had, you hadn't heard of molecular programming before. And yeah, I think um, most of us who come into this field is kind of, we haven't heard about it for years and then suddenly like, wait, this exists and, and yeah. get really deeply into it is, um, is that kind of part of how you um, came up with the idea of the art of molecular programming? For those who are listening but haven't heard of the art of molecular programming, uh, could you describe what it is exactly? Yeah, absolutely. So we sort of saw that there's a hole in the field where a basic textbook should be. So we don't really have a basic textbook that brings together established principles in our field. And now we're at a point where there are established principles because the field has sort of matured to that point, um, whereas maybe it wasn't there 10 or 15 years ago. So when incoming students come into the field or even like PIs or whoever um, and want to learn about what's happening, there's really no resource to go to besides just reading papers, which can get overwhelming because there are just so many now. Um, so the idea is that we wanted to write a textbook, but not just us, we wanted to bring in the whole community to do it. So we wanted it to be a sort of community-driven compilation of knowledge in the field um, that people could go to to learn about us. So that's, that's the basic idea. So we've brought on board editors from all across the field, um, geographically and scientifically, and at different stages of their scientific careers, um, to help us write. And then we're going to recruit authors from the field as well to write sections of the book and compile it together and hopefully have a really great finished product. If I understand right, it was you and Dominic at, at the beginning. What was the story behind coming up with that? Yeah, so actually what happened with that is, so I joined, when I um, joined Lulu's lab, it was like basically the end of the molecular programming project. Um so we had like one more meeting at Caltech early on when I was here and then it was over and it felt to me like as a new, an incoming student to molecular programming who didn't really know much, there wasn't a great sense of community in the field. Like we would go to conferences, but I didn't feel like, and, and I guess I was comparing it to, I had learned about um, the EBRC, which is like the synthetic biology consortium and they do they have like a lot of faculty involved and they do all sorts of um initiatives and they they talk about like the future of the field and they talk about like um security concerns and they, they talk about all sorts of things um but i didn't feel like we really had that sort of unifying force now that like these programs that had been going on for so long were over so i thought about it I had started thinking about it um, at a couple of conferences, but then at DNA 25, the one in Seattle, we had like an open discussion at the end and um, we were sort of talking, some people were asking about like, you know, 
sort of adjacent topics like the future of the field, so on and so forth. And so then I was like asking the question, like, what is our sense of community? Where does it come from? Like, how do we build it? And so on. So then my original idea was to sort of establish something like the EBRC, where we have like a website where we have like, you know, a software repository to collect all these, like this great software that people write and then nobody knows to use. Um, we collect events like a calendar. We, you know, shout out when people publish papers, like we, you know, do all these whatever X, Y, Z things. Um, and then I started talking to Dominic about it um, because he joined our lab like around that time. And so then in like having these discussions with him about it, we came up with this idea of a textbook. So we thought, okay, we'll start with this initiative and then hopefully it will grow into like a bigger community um, or like a bigger consortium-esque thing that can live on. So that was sort of the uh, progression of how it went from like basically me just thinking about community in the field to like me and Dominic working on this textbook and then it went from there. Yeah, and it's really getting going now. How how do you feel like looking at how how far kind of the recruitment has come in the last few few weeks? Like it's really exploding. Yeah, it's super exciting. I am really grateful that so many people are excited about this too, and like willing to put in the work. Um, I think like Dominic has been amazing. He's been like totally steering the ship, um, and William as well. Um, and then everyone else that we have like brought on board has been super enthusiastic on top of their tasks. Um, and like, I think the worry about this is that like, you know, people have so much other stuff going on. We're all super busy that it falls to the wayside. But I think everyone has so far been really prioritizing it because everyone sees how important it is and, and believes in it. So I feel like even if the project were to fail today or tomorrow, like, we have already accomplished so much by like bringing so many researchers together in like this common purpose and sort of seeing everyone get so excited about, um, about doing this. So when you got into molecular programming, um, you had Lulu's class to go off. Um, so that, that must've been a help, but, um, what do you think for you was the kind of most difficult thing to learn or, or to find information about that? You know, hopefully if, when we get this textbook ready, we'll, we'll kind of fill in those gaps. What was missing for you? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think for me, it was like, like understanding. So like you hear about people, basically the way I learned about like established principles about like reaction rates and like just basic stuff like that was either in Lulu's class or Eric's class, which I, I was fortunate that I could take both of their classes. Um, or just like listening to people say stuff in group meeting. Um, so I think the most difficult thing was just like all of those little things that everyone assumes everyone else knows, but you may not know because you didn't know to go read that specific paper from like 2002 or like that specific paper from whatever. Like, like maybe was about something entirely different, but also had this little piece that established this like little principle that now everyone accepts to be true. Um, I think that was the hardest part for me was like all these little, little things that people reference or just assume to be true. 
either one, like not knowing what they were talking about or not knowing where to look to get that information or the background or three, like potentially not agreeing, but also not having any basis to like go off of to like make that argument. So yeah, I think, I think it's just the hardest part for me was just knowing like where to go to look for information when I heard it in conversation and stuff. So I think Dominic calls them like little pieces of law. Exactly. Yeah. It's like you also, you almost have to like behave like a historian to kind of find loads of different bits from history in the field rather than just opening a textbook like any other field. <laughs> right. Right. It's like, where's the index for all these papers? <laughs> so hopefully it'll make the lives of future molecular programmers a lot easier to be able to reference something. Yeah. Um, so if you think back to of research you, you did in undergrad, did you start the tissue engineering research in undergrad or, or was mm-hmm. that when you came to Caltech? Yeah. Um, what do you think the main difference between, for, um, in your experience between undergraduate research and, and the research you're doing now is? Um, so I think the flavor of the research is entirely different in the sense that what I was doing in undergrad was had to do with like spinal cord injuries and like using neural stem cells to um, basically bridge the gap between um, nerves on like either side of the the severed severed area. Um, So it was a very practical application. It was a very specific application. Um, And then we were also doing like mouse studies and so on and so forth. What I do now is... I think much more, um, I, I like to, I think I describe a lot of the research in Lulu's lab as like high risk, high reward. So we take on really large questions. Um, I would say ambitious questions that, but the second part of it is that they're not necessarily practical, right? It's like more, how do we push, how far can we push the science for the sake of pushing the science? So we do keep in mind, like, what will this be useful for in the future? But that's not like the primary goal of what we're doing. So from that perspective, the philosophy of the research, I think, is very different from what I was doing in like my tissue engineering experience. But then I think there's also the piece of like an undergrad researcher versus a graduate researcher. There's just a a different level of ownership of what you're doing and understanding of what you're doing and and also like a different level of caring about the implications of what you're doing like I feel like an undergrad you're like okay let me get a paper and then I can go to grad school whereas now it's like what do I actually want to contribute to um the world of science um so yeah you bring up an interesting point about um you know the kind of research going on in molecular programming we're still very early on there's still we're starting to see some early signs of commercial applications and, and other applications but um i um at least in my opinion i think that it'll be quite quite a long way off before we get to see the really exciting applications that we're all working towards whereas in you could say more established fields like um tissue engineering cancer research etc you know you need to identify the applications and have kind of a shorter term focus do you think um uh is that something you appreciate being able to kind of just do exploratory research without having to worry about 
you know, are, are we are we going to achieve X in so many years? Yeah, I think there's a place for both. I mean, we need both, right? Because we can do as much exploratory science as we want, but eventually, like, we do science to better understand our world, to better be able to build things that are useful. Like, there, there is ultimately a purpose to it. But on the other hand, if you're too focused on applications, you might miss some, like, really cool out-of-the-box thinking um, that you would never get to if you were so concerned about, like, immediate application. So I think that there's... I think it's important that there are people doing both types of, of research. I think I'm enjoying... I mean, I really enjoyed being on more of an application side, um, but I'm also really enjoying, I think there's like a, a different level of, not like freedom, but sort of when you're not tied to a very specific application, I think maybe there is a bit more like leeway in how you can think about approaching the problem. Like you can sort of mess with your own parameters a little bit more than when it's more of like an engineering problem or more of a, you know, application. Um, so yeah, I think I'm enjoying the fact that I've been able to experience both. Um, I don't know which I prefer. Remains to be seen. I'll let you know in like three years. <laughs> <laughs> Have there been any unexpected discoveries um, in, in this research so far? Yeah, I mean, I think that we... I think every time there's a surprising, surprising data, there's an unexpected discovery. So I wouldn't say, I don't know if there's any one like giant thing I can point to, but I think just the behavior in general of like, like, as I was saying earlier, like surface reactions, I think we find surprising um, results all the time. Um, and I, I think like in the past, for example, like in the cargo sorting robot, um, that was published by Anu, who was a grad student in Lulu's lab before I was. Um, they figured out that because of the, um, they were using like, you know, in just an origami square, like a single layer. And they figured out that because the origami fluctuates so much in, like, if you look at a, a simulation of like origami and solution, it's like, you know, waving around all over the place. Um, the robot can just like jump from one corner of the origami to the other. Like it doesn't even need to follow its path because the two corners at some point come close enough together that it can do that. That's like a totally surprising thing that, because when you think about a surface, you're like, yeah, I have put them on opposite corners, like the, the robot and the track. So obviously they can't reach each other, but turns out they can because your surface is fluctuating. So um, yeah, I think like that's like one major surprising thing that I didn't discover, but, you know, has previously published. But um, I think we figure out surprising things like that all the time when we're working with surfaces because they don't, um, they just behave in really interesting ways. So, How difficult can it be to, um, to kind of figure that out? Can it sometimes take you like months of just staring at the data and be like, this doesn't make any sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I have a lot of data that I am just like, I don't really understand this. I'll come back to it. Like, I don't, um, I think that there are still some interactions of the surface with, uh, reactions that are happening on the surface that we definitely still don't understand. And there are some like components of our, 
like some additional factors that we maybe don't factor into our simulations because we don't quite understand. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I sometimes put data away for like a few weeks because I'm just like, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like maybe if I step away for a little bit and come back to it, I'll, I'll be able to, to see it. Um, so actually now that I'm done like teaching, I'm going to start looking back at, I sort of took like a, like a three month break from my own research because I was doing this other sort of little research project. Um, so it'll be interesting now to go back and look at my data from three months ago and, and see if I can make any additional conclusions that I couldn't at the time. Do you, have you ever felt like, um, I, I think a lot of us at, at some point feel this kind of imposter syndrome. Um, do you have any experiences with that? I, yeah. Oh yeah. I think <laughs> definitely. Um, I think that it's hard to not, especially like as a graduate student, it's really hard to not tie your ability as a graduate student or as a scientist to how successful your experiments are. Um, and I think it's like, and I think that's why, like what I mentioned earlier, like the, having to scrap the first design and like move on to a second, even if that is like a productive move forward and you had to do the first design to get to the second, it still feels like a failure, right? You're like, I couldn't get this design to work. So I must be a terrible scientist. Like, I think that's a, a pretty common sentiment among graduate students. And I definitely felt that way at that moment. And I still do, like, I still think back, like, why couldn't I get that to work, you know, like occasionally. Um, so I think it's something that most people struggle with um, because it's, yeah, it's just hard to not equate an experimental failure with like a failure to make it work, <laughs> um, which is a failure as a scientist. So yeah, I have definitely struggled with that and continue to. And I, I don't think, I mean, honestly, I think even professors who have been professors for, you know, many, many years occasionally struggle with this sentiment too. Um, but we all chase that high of a successful experiment. And so <laughs> the fleeting high among all the feeling like an imposter. <laughs> yeah, completely. And I, I think we're kind of finally making a bit of a breakthrough in that people are talking about this more. And so we do um, hear that, yeah, the, these professors that we look up to and it looks like everything goes perfectly and actually they, they do feel it. Um, so I, I think that... Um, is helpful for people in the same situation. I think my favorite, I think I think my favorite example of that, um, like, like when the professors talk about it, is like um, Edward Wilson, who's a Harvard professor of, I think, ecology. Um, he's he speaks about in his book um, and in a TED talk about how the first time he ever learned calculus was sitting as a fully tenured professor in a class full of undergrads to uh, to learn it in order to like help him with his research. That's amazing. I love that. And uh, yeah, I think that that's so, it's awesome because it demonstrates that like, it because you don't know something or like it doesn't make you not worthy. And I actually, I think it's interesting because you can tell like the people in a, seminar, for example, who ask questions, who are not afraid to sound stupid or whatever, because they, they feel that confidence that like, it's okay if I don't know this thing, 
that's why I'm going to ask about it. And it doesn't make me any less. But I think a lot of people don't ask questions because they feel like, oh, then I'll sound stupid or like, I'll sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, and I love that, that Edward Wilson was sitting in on the calculus class because I think that takes that level of confidence that um, hopefully we will soon all learn, you know, like now that we're talking more about this feeling and the fact that everyone is really feeling it and, or a lot of people are feeling it, hopefully people will feel more comfortable doing stuff like that. Do you have any advice for people in that situation? I, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that, that even the people who you feel like you see, I don't know, it's like Instagram, right? Like you see all the good things that other people are putting out there, right? But you're not seeing all the, the bad things. So it's easy to compare yourself to other grad students or other, you know, postdocs or faculty and say like, I'm not where they are, or like, I'm not doing as well as they are. I don't have as many papers published as they do. Um, but you also like, have no idea what struggles they're facing. Um, maybe they're feeling the same way. Like I don't have as many conference talks as this person or I haven't, you know, whatever. So I think the, it's important to be talking about it. It's important to recognize that what you see of other people is like a very curated set of like what that person has experienced. And so people are a lot more alike than you think. Um, and the, I guess the other piece of it, which I've like learned from Lulu, which is one thing that I, I mean, I admire and respect many things about her, but one of the things that I love about her is the way she talks about failure. She's like, you know, we are learning something every time something isn't the way we expected it to be. And so I think that attitude is really important to have. Yeah. So it's like, even if you mess something up, I don't know, you did a bad experiment, you gave a bad interview, like you, whatever. It's like you learn what you can from it and you use that to do better next time. Yeah, I think that's a really nice sentiment. I'll ask one one last question. Um, what are you really excited about in, in the field um, that's maybe like outside of your research? Oh, that's a good question. Um, there are so many things I'm excited about outside of my research. Um, I think one thing that I've gotten really excited about recently is the idea of um, like building circuits in such a way that you can like activate them at a later time. So I think people have been doing this in many ways. For example, like putting components on like sheets of paper that you then like put on top of each other and wet them and then you like get a complete circuit. Um, but until they're wet, they're just like immobilized. Or not immobilized, but not in contact with each other. Um, I think there are many ways that people are compartmentalizing circuits that you could then activate them together. But I think being able to do that makes them um, potentially useful for a lot of applications where you want it, you want the circuit activated at some point and inactive at another point. Um, so yeah, that's like something I'm. Circuits is not really like my area, but I think that that's a place that we could see like more commercial applications pretty soon. Um, and then I've always thought like data storage was really interesting and fun. I always love to hear the talks about how to access like random access memory um, for DN like data stored in DNA. Um, that's always fun. So I don't know, there's a lot of things. I, I feel like I could list like 10 things I'm really excited about in the field, but 
those are a couple. Yeah, yeah, there's so much. Thank you so much for joining us, Namita. Stay tuned to our newsletter for announcements of our next episodes, and thanks for listening.